Father in heaven, today, uh, today we're going to look at, well, we're going to look at you, and we're going to look at ourselves. I'm praying that we see more of you. These things that we're going to talk about matter, and they're important, and you want us to see them and experience them. So I pray you'll help us do that. Would you open our eyes that, that we can see truth? Would you open our hearts that we can receive it? Father, would you help us dive into this subject that we might live? In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of preachers that plan out their messages years in advance. You could sit down with some preachers and they could tell you what they're preaching in the year 2016. I am not one of those preachers. Sometimes I envy those guys because I think, man, that kind of organization has got to be a dream for you. Week to week, you know what you're going to do and it eliminates a lot of the pressure. I, I'm not one of those preachers. Now, I'm not saying that how they preach is wrong, nor am I saying how I preach is right. I'm just saying that's how some do it. For me, I live almost week to week. Oftentimes, if things are working out really well, I will know two or three weeks ahead of time what I'm going to preach. When we start into a series of sermons like we're in right now, titled, He Touches Us, We Live, a lot of times I know what the subjects are going to be for a few weeks ahead of time. Three weeks ago, I knew that we were going to be talking about worship today. Then over the course of the, the past few days, God seemed to intervene knowing that that was the subject of this morning's sermon and knowing that I needed some help with it. So he made a couple of things pop up on my computer screen via newspapers that changed the direction of this message. And they took me studying things that I had not planned on studying, but I'm glad I did. Now here's the first thing that happened. I got a, or didn't get, this wasn't sent to me, I just happened to see it in the newspaper, and it caught my attention. Headline says, Sunday Assembly, a godless service coming to a church near you. Now let me tell you what the, the article said. A fellow named Sanderson Jones, who is a stand-up comedian, along with another friend of his, also a comedian named Pippa Evans, have decided that stand-up comedy is not all they want to do. They also want to become a sort of church planter. Sanderson Jones is the one who's really leading this charge. For the first 10 years of his life, he was in the church. His mother raised him that way. She made sure that, she, that he was mired in the things of God. When he was 10, she died of cancer. And rather than running deep into the arms of God, he ran away from him. And he's been running for the last 22 years. In the midst of all of his running, though, he has determined that something is missing in his life. There is a hollowness, an emptiness that does not seem to be filled by anything else. And he's decided that if he were to start church services for people just like himself, people with no faith at all, that that emptiness in his life could be filled and it could be filled in theirs. They are sadly mistaken. I want you to listen to what he writes about this or what the newspaper writes about this. Recently, after the first ever service in the English seaside town of Brighton, 240 atheists turned up for sermon-like speakers, readings, singing, and all the things you would expect in a religious setting. We talk about developing an attitude of gratitude, Sanderson told ABC News. It's catchy, isn't it? Sanderson said he was tired of the dour meetings held by the humanists and the Unitarians. Why on earth aren't people clapping and dancing around and jumping up and down at those gatherings, he asked. We wanted to do something like a church for people who don't believe in God, said Sanderson. 
Life is such a wonderful thing to have been given, and frankly, it's a transcendent as any one God. We come from nothing and go to nothing, and in between, we have these short, glazing moments of awareness and consciousness to love and sing and mess up and try again. We should celebrate it. The assembly is also hoping to offer church-like rituals for life's big events, marriage, birth, and death. It's a shame conventional funerals aren't celebratory enough, said Sanderson. People who go to church are healthier, wealthier, live longer, and are happier, he said. One of the best things about church is that it's a safe place for everyone and appeals to people with families as well. About 5% of all Americans say that they do not believe in God or a universal spirit. But only about one quarter of these non-believers actually call themselves atheists. One Roy Speckhard, who is executive director of the American Humanist Association, likes the idea of the Sunday Assembly, citing its technology, entertainment, and humor. It's not like what we have done before with weekly lectures and a gathering for lunch afterwards. Our meetings are mostly academic and somewhat social. That's nice, but it's not quite the community atmosphere that you get in a modern church today. Sanderson goes on to say, The megachurch environment is the highest level of entertainment and not just a weekly moment with your pastor. It's much more structured than that. Many non-believers could come out of the woodwork later if a certain critical mass is reached, he said. Pew studies that show one-third of Americans connected their faith do not believe in God. They are ripe for this, he said. So he is targeting this fall the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and the United States for the launch of over 40 church-like services with self as the center of what they're talking about. That's their point of worship. They're coming together to celebrate themselves. They're coming together to worship themselves. No thought whatsoever given to God. No thought given whatsoever to the fact that they are on this planet by His grace. I would offer to Sanderson Jones and Pippa Evans and any others that would attend, that they will leave as hollow and as empty, as wandering and as shallow as they were when they came, because they cannot replace the worship of God with the worship of self. Many people have tried, and it has literally destroyed their lives If you want examples of that, take a look at Justin Bieber or take a look at Miley Cyrus. They have embraced the idea of celebrating themselves so much so that they have destroyed their lives. They have never been touched by the worship of God. John Eldridge would teach that deep inside the heart of every one of us, there are three longings that can only be filled by the worship of God. The first one is this. It is an understanding that we must have life. And every human being knows that. We must have life. And once you get your arms around that, you go, Eldridge says, deeper into your heart where you discover the fact that you cannot bring that life about on your own. It requires somebody else. The Bible would teach that God breathed life, physical life, into us in the beginning, and that Jesus came to bring us not just physical life, but the abundant life. Christians understand that. They understand, in fact, the third deep longing of the heart that Eldridge identifies. Once we figure out that we must have life and that we can't bring it about ourselves, then we understand this, that in Jesus Christ, life is possible. It enlarges our purpose. It changes our vision when we understand that in Jesus Christ, life as God intended it is possible. 
It helps us approach everything, just like Steve was saying a few minutes ago in that communion meditation. For a Christian, when they face the end of their life, there's a certain expectation that Jesus is waiting for us. So I can leave this world and go on to the next with great peace, great hope, great expectation. The non-believer does not have that. The person outside of Christ will do whatever it takes to hold on to this life because the years on this earth are all that matters. And in fact, for many, there's great fear of what waits. But for a Christian, that's not the case. So these folks are going to get together under Sanderson Jones' leadership and Pippa Evans' leadership, and they're going to celebrate themselves, and they want to have this transcendent experience, and it will do nothing for them because God will not be the focus of their worship. They will not be touched by anything that happens there. Their lives will not be changed, nor will they find the abundant life possible in Jesus Christ. Then there was a second article that showed up on my computer screen this past week. This one is a little more appalling to me. Take a look at this. This is actually a restaurant in Chicago. For the month of October, they have created a new burger, and that's all they make are hamburgers. They have just a few tables and chairs, but they wanted to do something special. Every month, they have a theme burger. This is this month's. It has a beef patty on the bottom, pulled pork on top of that, melted cheese across the top, and then a communion wafer that sits on top of that melted cheese. And covering all of it is a reduced red wine sauce. They have named that hamburger the Ghost in honor of a heavy metal band from Europe named Ghost. So they use the holy and the sacred to try to bring honor and glory not to God and not to Jesus Christ, but to a heavy metal band. Listen to what the article says. Chicago restaurant has cooked up a controversial burger for the month of October, garnishing it with an unconsecrated communion wafer and a red wine reduction sauce. Kuma's Corner, a foodie destination with just a few tables, names its hamburger after heavy metal bands. For October, the restaurant chose to name the burger after the Swedish band Ghost, Members of the band dress in religious robes and wear skeleton face makeup. Luke Tobias, Kuma's Corner Director of Operations, said the restaurant never wanted to offend anyone. He said reaction has been a mixed bag, but more positive than negative. There are people who are offended by it, but we're delighted to see that generally people seem to have a sense of humor, Tobias said. The Ghost Burger is selling well because customers are curious about it. Of course they're curious about it. It's sacrilegious. Of course they're curious about it. It's heresy. Of course they're curious about it. It knocks on the door of blasphemy. But of course they're curious about it because people are seeking truth. And even in the midst of humor, people are still looking for truth. There's some biblical truth I believe they need to hear, particularly the owners of this restaurant. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You may have read this a number of times. 1 Corinthians 11 is a chapter given to the Lord's Supper and how we take it. And oftentimes we read the beginning of that chapter so that we understand the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us and the symbols that represent both. And and we come to terms with the sacred and the holy out of 1 Corinthians 11, but we stop short way too often. Listen to verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now that's pretty straightforward teaching from the apostle. If we boil it all down, here's what we find out. Mishandle the Lord's Supper, and some of you are going to get sick. Mishandle the Lord's Supper, some of you are going to die. When the Bible says some of you have fallen asleep, that's biblical teaching for Christians that have died. And so Paul wants us to understand how serious, how sacred, how holy the act of communion is, and he wants us to approach it the right way. So he says, don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. Because if some of you do, there are huge consequences. I wish somebody would let this restaurant in Chicago know that. This is not a laughing matter. Taking the sacred and the holy and turning it into a hamburger, that's not a light issue. Worshiping yourself, that's pointless. Absolutely pointless. But for people that understand the Lord's Supper and what Jesus has done for us, people that understand the point of worship being God, not ourselves, have actually been touched. They've been touched by worship. And what we find when that happens is life. When you have been touched by worship, you can truly live. Amen? Let me show you why that is. Let's go to the Old Testament, right in the middle of your Bibles, to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 34, verse 3. There you're going to find the point of worship. Psalm chapter 34, verse 3. The psalmist, which is David, says, Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There's the purpose of worship, to magnify God. When we come together on Sunday mornings or when you enter into personal times of worship, that's the point, to magnify God. The, well, not the, but John the Baptist, there we go, would say it this way in John chapter 3, verse 30. He must become greater... I must become less. That's what it looks like to magnify God. God gets bigger, we get smaller. Worship allows us to do that. When we are worshiping God, God's presence, God's spirit grows over and over and over us, and we get smaller and smaller and smaller. And it applies in all kinds of different ways in our lives. You might come into church on Sunday morning with huge, huge issues going on. They might be more than you could ever explain to anybody else. Until you magnify God, those issues will dominate everything that you do. They will take captive every thought that you have. Those issues will determine almost every moment of your life because they're so big. But when you magnify God, God grows over those issues and the issues become small. You're able to make your way through them. You may come into church with a lot of worries, and maybe your entire week was defined by worries and anxiety, so much so that you're almost paralyzed at times. Worship then allows you to magnify God over those worries, over that anxiety, and the worries and the anxious moments become very small because you have magnified God over them. He must become greater, I must become less, and when I do, everything changes. Maybe you come into worship on Sunday morning or you enter into worship in your personal private times with huge questions in your life. And it doesn't seem like you can ever get any answers for them. 
Maybe you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do or where you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to go, how you're supposed to get there. Maybe you're just trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life. One of the biggest questions permeating our society today is, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose? What am I here for? If you were to sit down at your computer, I challenge you to do this. Go to Google search engine and just type in the meaning of life. No answers will show up. Though many people would type that in, what you will find is all kinds of different discussions about why people are seeking it. You'll find all kinds of different explanations for why nobody can find it. You will find all kinds of different websites that will direct you to different ends, each one of them dead. They will never tell you what the meaning of life is. I tried it this last week. I know. So I decided to take it up a notch. A few months ago, I got an iPhone. I have really enjoyed my iPhone 5. I have to tell you, it's a great tool. When I'm driving down the road now, I do a lot of voice texting. That's pretty cool. So hands-free texting, I'm digging that. There's a GPS on it, manages calendars and life and all kinds of different things. And it's, it's really been a great tool. But one of my favorite parts about it is the voice-activated person within my iPhone. Her name is Siri. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Siri is a lot of fun. You can ask Siri all kinds of different questions, and I have. So this last week, I thought, I'm going to test Siri and see what she comes up with on the meaning of life. So I held the button down. Siri said, what may I help you with? I said, Siri, what's the meaning of life? Here's her answer. There is no consensus for that question. Even Siri can't answer it, but the Bible can When we magnify God and we become smaller, He becomes greater, we find the answer for a question that drives all of society and all of humanity. What is the meaning of life? What's my purpose? What's my direction? Here it is, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. That's the meaning of life. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. Siri can't answer it, Google can't answer it, the Bible does. And when we magnify God and He becomes greater, we become less. We can see that. We can actually see that. But there's more that happens in worship than just having our issues taken care of and our worries eliminated and even getting our questions answered. There's more that happens in worship. Let me show it to you. In order to see this, we're going to have to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, New Testament, Book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. Now here's a little background for you that may have kept a number of you out of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 14 deals with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. It can be very hard for a lot of people to approach that subject, particularly within our brotherhood of churches, because we don't practice speaking in tongues in our churches, so people read that, they skip right over it. But really what it is, is a chapter that deals with worship. Speaking in tongues just happens to be a portion of the worship that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We do not have enough time to go into it, but I encourage you to spend some time looking at that gift, figuring out what tongues really is. Get into it, explore it, give it a shot. Inasmuch as we don't have time to do it today, our SALT group will be exploring it in a few weeks. We just, on Wednesday night, launched a study of 1 Corinthians. So when we come to chapter 14... We will be deep in the heart of speaking in tongues there. So don't run away from it. Jump into it, explore it, see what the Bible says about it. If you have a lot of questions and you really wish they could get answered today, well, I encourage you to talk to the elders about speaking in tongues. Any one of them would be happy to answer your questions. 
Right, David? Boy, that was very willing of you. <laughs> so visit with him. At the end of this chapter, we get into a different gift. The Bible would refer to it as prophecy. Prophecy is the proclamation of God's truth. Today, that comes in the form of preaching. So that happens in our corporate worship. I want you to listen for two things that the writer would tell us happens when we come together and the truth of God's word is proclaimed. Verse 24. But if an unbeliever, someone who does not understand, comes in while everybody is prophesying, proclaiming God's truth, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. In true worship, honest worship, when we are involved in it, here's the amazing thing, God works. When we worship, God works. A lot of times we want to believe that we come to worship God and we want to believe that we come to convince God of certain things. That's not the case at all. The point of worship or the purpose of worship is not to change God. The purpose of worship is to change the worshiper. And you can see exactly how it plays out. When God works in our life through worship, the secrets of our hearts, the secrets of your heart, are laid bare, and even the unbeliever is changed. So we wrap this message up. Let's take both of those individually and just take a look at them and how they work. In order to deal with this first one, the laying bare of the secrets of our heart, we're going to go back to the Old Testament again, to the book of Exodus. While you're turning there, let me share just a few things with you. God gave the Hebrew people, the children of Israel, a wonderful gift that they were supposed to use when they came before him in worship. We would do well to hold on to the same gift today. Most of us have let it go, and that's absolutely tragic. We're in the second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. Let me show you what we're looking at. Chapter 19, we're going to make our way through the whole chapter. We're going to skip around and go through it pretty fast. Verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt... On the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, here's what God has said to Moses. Moses, I want you to remind them as they come into worship, you remind them what I have done. You remind them of how I delivered them. You remind them of how I sustained them. You remind them of how I carried them. Folks, if we follow that same pattern when we come into worship, we're going to be a long ways down the road for magnifying God when you remember what God has done for you. When you approach worship here or any place else, even throughout the course of the week, you remember what God has done for you. And worship will begin to grow within you. You will magnify God. He will become greater. You will become less. But God doesn't stop there. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
Now here's that Old Testament practice. It shows up here and again in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. God tells Moses, you consecrate the people. You prepare them. So one of the physical ways that he said to do that is wash their clothes. That's just a physical outward sign. Consecration is an inward act. We're to consecrate our hearts before we come in to worship. We're to deal with the ugliness. We're to deal with the mess. We're to prepare ourselves to be in the presence of the holy. We're to prepare ourselves to come into the presence of God Himself. Consecrate your heart. Consecrate your life is the godly teaching. Men, let me take just a minute and talk to you. Ladies, you can just check out at this part of the sermon. You don't have to pay attention whatsoever. So this is just for the guys. Fellas, there's a responsibility that's been placed on your shoulders for this. You consecrate not only your life, but you consecrate your wife's life. You lead her by consecrating her before she comes into the presence of God, and you consecrate your children. Are you preparing your family to come to worship? Fellas, do you do that? Before I discovered this passage, I was really bad at it. We would get in the car and head to worship and head to church, and I'd be giving the kids a list of what they were not supposed to do. And most of that had to do with, don't embarrass your mother or I. That's really what it boiled down to. So we went through this whole list of what they were supposed to do. We weren't talking about God. We weren't talking about what God had done. We were talking about what was going to happen in the next few minutes and how they were supposed to behave themselves. There's nothing consecrating about that. When you consecrate yourself or your wife or your children, you're preparing them to come into the presence of the Lord. Fellas, let me challenge you to figure out what that looks like. Let me figure and challenge you to figure out how you do that. Because God said leadership rests on your shoulders. Don't take that lightly. You consecrate your family and yourself and come into the presence of God. Prepare yourselves. We're going to pick up now. Verse 14. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And all of the Hebrew people were in the presence of God, and they worshipped. Right after that, Moses went up on Mount Sinai where he received the law of God. He was gone for quite some time. The children of Israel moved from this worship experience into the absence of Moses. Even though their hearts had been consecrated, Moses was still the one that connected them to worship. I want you to see what happens in just 14 chapters by the time we get to Exodus chapter 33. Take a look with me. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. You see, in 14 chapters, after they had consecrated their heart, just 14 chapters, just a few days, They moved from magnifying God back into magnifying self. And when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai, carrying the tablets that the Lord had carved out for him, 
The first thing he saw was them worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had helped them make. They were no longer magnifying God, now they were magnifying self. See how easy it is? When we go from one worship experience and it's a long time before the next, self grows. And self grows very fast. And the life that we have been given with God begins to dissipate and disappear. And that's what's happening right here. They were back focused on themselves. Verse 4 will show you how. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Those ornaments were all about worshiping who they were. They were growing, and God was shrinking. And worship was messed up. And death was going to be a byproduct. But when we worship, and it is a worship that magnifies God, He touches us in it, and we live. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. And that's what God wants us to experience. And that's not just here on Sunday mornings. That's in life. When you stop driving down the road and you see what God has made, and you give glory to Him, and you magnify God, and you worship Him, then He touches you, and you live. Because He changes your focus. He changes your vision. He shows you how to walk humbly before Him. That's what God does. When He touches us and we live, that's what we experience. God is magnified and we shrink and there's nothing better. There's nothing better. And that's why Sanderson Jones, his whole experiment is going to fall on his face because all they're doing is magnifying themselves. People have been doing that for centuries. They'll fall on their face, hollow and empty. Because there's no life there. And there is no truth there. But there is both in Christ. Now back to 1 Corinthians 14. We know that the sins, secret sins, and the secret issues of our heart are laid bare before God in worship. That's an amazing thing to stop and think about. I hear this on a regular basis, and I want you to know I appreciate these comments, but let me set the record straight. People will tell me when they leave on Sunday morning, boy, it seemed like you were just preaching right at me. Anybody ever felt that way? Just raise your hands. Well, it just seemed like he was preaching right at me. You realize that's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your confidence, but that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Word of God as it lays bare the secrets of your heart. In worship, that happens When you are consecrated and prepared for it in worship, God lays the secrets of your heart bare so that you can deal with them and so can He. So that God can show you a plan or a path. He can answer questions. He can eliminate worries and anxieties. He can deal with the issues as He lays bare your heart. And then something else happens according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. When real worship is happening and non-believers see it, Even they are changed. When real worship is happening and non-believers as bystanders, spectators, see it and experience it, they are changed. There is a lot of skepticism about how people worship. There are a lot of questions about how people worship and it happens in every facet of life. People will question over and over and over again, is it pure, is it real, is it honest, can it be trusted? It's our responsibility to help give those answers. Let me give you just a a simple little illustration of the skepticism. My daughter, Katie, who is 15 and driving in my heart. Well, anyway, she has a teacher at the high school. 
that in front of the entire class called into question her faith and said to her that she does not go to church. This is in front of the entire class. Said to her that she does not go to church because she wants to. She goes to church because we make her. And he worded it in such a way that she was backed into a corner and she said, no, I go to church because I want to. Well, 15-year-old girl being questioned by a person in position of authority over her about her faith. And he says to her, it can't be real. When he found out that she actually volunteers at the church and that that's something that she wants to do and something that she enjoys doing, he refused to accept that as truth. And he said to her, that is absolutely not the case. The only reason you would ever serve at the church is because if you don't, your parents will make you feel guilty. And that's said in front of the entire class. And Katie has to give answer for it. That's how strong the skepticism is. It permeates every aspect of society. It permeates every part of who we are, and it is not a respecter of age or position or geography. That skepticism is everywhere because people that don't understand Christ don't understand Christ. People that do not have a relationship with God cannot understand those that do, but the Bible says when we have entered into pure, real worship, they look and say, surely God is in this place. And they begin to see the Lord even the greatest of skeptics. One of the the most wonderful compliments I ever get about this church is exactly that. And I don't think people know that they're quoting the Bible when they say it. They'll leave on Sunday morning and say, boy, I just felt the presence of God there. God was in this place. I love that statement. Because that means that they have looked at the people worshiping here and they've seen something. They've experienced something. They've been touched. And maybe, just maybe, they will live. And do you know what they've seen? According to the book of 2 Corinthians, here it is. Chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When a non-believer enters this place and, and they see you and they watch your life not just here but other places and they see how you have been touched in worship and how you carry worship with you they're seeing your changed face your unveiled face that reflects the glory of God you might say to yourself I I want that how do I get there the answer is simple it comes from an old monk he actually taught that we can practice the presence of God which means we can practice having God in every aspect of our life. We can practice taking God everywhere with us. We can practice spending time with Him, and it requires that. Now, here's the illustration of what the monk would say. When I was growing up, I fell in love with photography as an art form. It is one of my favorites. I am absolutely amazed when somebody can capture an image of real life and make it look the way they do. My dad was able to do that. He had cameras when we were growing up, and I loved his cameras, loved to play with the equipment. When he'd get new ones, he would pass his old ones on to me, and I would play around with them and take pictures, and and I tried to get to where I could take pictures like he could and like other people could. Here's a little-known fact for you about your preacher. For the last two years of high school, I worked at Kmart selling cameras. I was in the camera department. I was pretty good at it, by the way. Stood behind the counter, people would come, they'd want to buy a little camera, I'd convince them to buy a bigger camera. As they were looking at this little tiny one, I'd say, let me show you what this one can do, and I could put all the stuff together, and I could talk all the talk, and I could have all the conversations with them about it, and and they would buy the camera. Here's what they didn't know. I'm a horrible photographer. 
I really am. Even though I can talk about it, and even though I know how the equipment works, I'm a terrible photographer. And I still am today. I look at the pictures that people take, and there are some great photographers in this church. They take beautiful pictures. And I'll think to myself, gosh, if I had the same equipment they did, I could take the same picture. If I had the same timing they did, this could be just absolutely fantastic. If the light would shine on me the way the light shines on them, oh, look out. Here's what I've really figured out. If I would practice, I could take those same kind of pictures. But I don't. And there are a number of people that would say, gosh, I'm looking at this person's life and they seem to have figured out a life of worship and they practice the presence of God and they live with God all the time. Every moment of every day, the things of God are on their lip and when they worship, it seems pure and real and and why doesn't mine seem that way? Maybe because you haven't practiced the presence of God. Maybe you've not been touched in worship. Or maybe you have been and it's been a long time and you've started to put some ornaments on and and you've started to magnify self and God's been shrinking. Turn it back around. Practice the presence of God and worship will change. And it may very well be that other people will change right along with it. And you will have an impact in their lives. Be fantastic, wouldn't it? Just fantastic by practicing the presence of God. You learn to magnify God. He becomes greater, you become less. And that ought to be every one of our goals. I want to invite you to stand and pray with us. In fact, Dini is going to come and and, uh, lead us in a time of prayer and offer that invitation. Dear Father, as we come before you, God, we're thankful that you are who you are and that you have put uh, others in our lives, Lord, to uh, throw us lifelines. And help us, God, but it's all through your power and strength. Help us to uh, call on you and experience the experience of you answering our prayers, God. And also the people that are struggling today with many different things, God, and we've learned about worship this morning, what Phil has been talking about. Help us to be able to really worship you in spirit and in truth. And that when we don't know how, God, we ask you to show us how and you do. So help us in that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.